Well, this morning I want to begin with a little quiz as we study God's Word, just to get you thinking about different things. How many of you know what a quizzling is? Anybody? What's a quizzling? Anybody know what a quizzling is? I see at least one. Terry, you were here first hour. Uh, there's a second. That's good. Doing better than, than first hour because only I think there was, there was one student who knew what a quizzling was. A quizzling is a traitor. Comes from the Norwegian politician Vidkun Quisling, who assisted Nazi Germany in conquering his own country. And so since then, not in our country, in the 21st century, when someone is a Quisling, they're a traitor. All right, let me help your self-esteem a little bit. More of you will get this one right. How many of you know what a Benedict Arnold is? Not all of you, but a lot of you do. Those of you who paid attention in American history... Uh, Benedict Arnold, I mean, he, he's the, the most famous, infamous traitor in all of our history, Benedict Arnold. And so when someone is called a Benedict Arnold, they're a traitor. I'm going to help all of you on this one. You're going to feel really good about yourself. How many of you know what a Judas is? Ah, we all know what a Judas is because he's the most famous traitor of all. When you think of uh, the classic trader, the one who stands head and shoulders above all of the others, or should I say below, the most notorious, the quintessential trader, it's Judas. Everyone knows that. When you hear Judas, you think trader. If you hear someone called a Judas, you know that that means trader. Well, it's because of Judas in the Bible, Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus. And this morning what we're going to do is take a closer look. We're going to uh, take a closer look at Judas as the one who betrayed Jesus, and specifically in Matthew 27. So if you have a Bible, I'll ask you to turn to Matthew 27, and we learn more about Judas in Matthew's account in Matthew 27 than anywhere else, I believe. And as you're finding Matthew 27, I, I have to point out how odd this is. It is odd that we learn the most about Judas in Matthew 27. Because if you were to say to me, what comes to mind, Pat, when you hear of Matthew 27, I immediately think, as many of you uh, would as well, you think crucifixion. You think betrayal, Jesus, crucifixion, it's getting toward the end. The last person on my mind is Judas. Well, what also makes it a bit strange is where it's placed in Matthew 27. It makes it just come out of almost the middle of nowhere. Let me show you what I mean. If you'd follow along with me, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And if we were to keep reading, then when Judas, who had betrayed him, and you say, what? Then for eight verses, Matthew inserts all of this stuff about Judas. Whereas if we just read verses 1 and 2 and then picked it up, I think, down in verse 11, it would make a lot more sense. It's like Matthew, under divine inspiration, we would believe, presses pause and then goes off on this little tangent, like all good preachers do, and talks about Judas. It's meant to stick out. It's meant to catch us off guard, I think, and to say, what? Why in the world, when we were learning all about Jesus and, and all about what was happening to him and we're getting closer and closer to the crucifixion, why in the world would he press pause and tell, tell us about Judas? 
Is it a mistake? Is it an accident? Well, why, why did he do this? And, and I believe, and based upon even something we will later see in the text itself, I don't believe it was a mistake. It was on purpose, and it was to serve this primary purpose. This is really what the whole, whole study this morning is about. It's to remind us that Jesus is betrayed, treated unjustly, perhaps even, you know, worst of all, by Judas. And it was according to divine plan. That this was not a glitch on the screen. If there was ever a time when you might think it was a glitch on the screen, you'd think, Judas. You'd think, wrong place, wrong time, bad luck, something's gone terribly wrong, this whole Judas thing. Well, even based upon something he's going to say in the text, Matthew, unlike the other gospel accounts, goes out of his way, off on a tangent, to talk about Judas in such a way that we all would read it and realize even the bad things that Judas did were part of God's unfolding, sovereign plan of redemption It's not a glitch on the screen, which should then cause us, and this will be the the application of the sermon, to then, once again, perhaps like we've never done before, praise God for being in control of the entire redemptive plan through Christ, in control, in charge, sovereign over even Judas, the traitor, who was no doubt, as I would always want to emphasize, morally responsible for the bad that he did. But nevertheless, God is superintending. God is in charge. God is in control. Christ is, as we sang in the song, and Tyler so rightfully pointed out, the Savior is sovereign through all of this. Well, more about that later. As we work our way through the passage, beginning in verse 3, what we're going to see is Judas sees now that Jesus is convicted He is going to be crucified. And so Judas responds. And as Judas responds in multiple different ways, then the religious leaders respond to Judas and they respond back and forth. That's what we'll see. A number of different responses. There's really no need for an outline. There's no need for me to tell you there are six different responses or anything like that. The story flows best when we just read it. And we will do that. And we will see how Judas responds to this. And we'll see how they respond to Judas. Join me, if you would, in verse 3 where it says... Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he, Jesus, had been condemned, he felt remorse. Feels bad. He sees what has happened. He realizes now, if you will, the nail is in the coffin. There's no going back. He is going to be crucified as some sort of insurrectionist. He's going to die. And so how does Judas respond at this point in time? Well, remarkably enough, he responds by saying the key word there is with remorse. Now, there's been a bit of confusion as a result of this, probably because of the King James Bible translation. I'm a fan of the King James Bible uh, because it's a literal translation, but here they translated the Greek word repent. Actually, it's not the the best word to to translate repent because there's actually a different word that's typically translated repent. And when you look at the whole context, he didn't repent. 
Remorse is a great translation, and perhaps you have a translation that's somewhat similar to that, because when, when typically you think of repent, he's turning from his sin, and you have repentance being inseparable in the Bible from faith, believing in Christ. Judas doesn't repent in that sense. He doesn't turn from his sin and, 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 and make the 180 and believe in Christ as his Lord and his Savior. There's nothing in this text or any other text about Judas they would have us believe that. And so a better translation, even a more consistent literal translation, would be that he felt remorse. He felt badly. He felt regret. And this isn't anything different from what we're used to seeing. It happens all the time. It happens with us. We make bad decisions. We feel bad about them. And then we do them again. Lest you feel too bad about yourself, let me just take the attention off of you because I'm sure no one here ever makes bad decisions, feels bad about them, and then goes back to doing them again. You know those other people out there who aren't as wise as you are. You know those friends of yours and people who don't make good decisions and they make a bad decision, you see they feel bad about it, and then they do it again. Well, we do the same thing. There's no genuine change of heart. There's no genuine repentance, if you will. There's nothing in the text that would have us believe that Judas did anything more than feel bad as far as he didn't repent and then say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, saving faith. Well, with that in mind, he's feeling bad. Well, that's not all. That leads him to to respond in another way. If you keep reading in verse 3, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. You might want to write in your margin there, chapter 26, verses 14 and 15. He returns the 30 pieces of silver... To them, they're the ones that gave him the 30 pieces of silver to go and betray Jesus. So he's simply returning to them what they had given to him. Then verse 4 says, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So Judas not only feels regret, he not only returns the money, what's more is he acknowledges his sin. And what's more is he says, Jesus is innocent. This is remarkable. This is absolutely remarkable that he is saying what's true and what's right as the villain in the story. It really stands out. I think it's meant to stand out. He, he says Jesus is innocent and Jesus is, is, is innocent. And I don't know about you, but there's something in me that, that is really drawn to, and this is always the case, it's not just with me. You're drawn to the fact that, that you know, the truth is the truth no matter who speaks it. But when the bad guy speaks the truth... You know, it really kind of shines. I mean, this, this account here is almost as good as in Matthew 8 when the demons were speaking the truth about Jesus. And we, we start those passages and say, see, even the demons know. Even the demons speak the truth sometimes. Well, here Judas is giving, giving an amazing testimony about the innocence of Jesus. Doesn't mean he's a Christian. Doesn't mean demons are Christians in Matthew eight twenty nine. But he's acknowledging that he did the wrong thing and that Jesus didn't do the wrong thing. Well, now for their response to Judas's response. Look at verse 4 where it goes on to say, But they, the chief priests and elders, said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. That's like them saying, The music has stopped. We have chairs to sit in. The fact that you don't have a chair to sit in is your problem. 
Don't look at us. Who, who, we don't even, you know, it's like, we don't even know what you're talking about. We, we have nothing to do with you. We have nothing to do with this. What do you even mean? It's even stronger if you read it a little bit more literally. I know a number of you have the same translation I'm preaching from this morning. At the end there, the New American Standard says, see to that yourself. Well, you'll notice there that they've italicized to that because it's actually added to smooth it out which is legitimate. I like it that the New American Standard italicizes things when they add things to smooth it out so we know that they added it there. But it actually carries more punch. It's just not as smooth if you just take it literally. See yourself! It's actually in the Greek New Testament, if my memory serves me correctly, reversed. Yourself see! Emphasize on you! This isn't our problem! You're feeling guilty. You're feeling bad. You see the innocence of Jesus. You know what? That's your problem. It's not our problem. Don't look to us for any help. Don't look to us for any reversals. You're left handing, holding the goods. Don't look at us. You're solely responsible. But when you think about it, this should be, mean something to them, right? It should be significant. Who are they? Who are these guys? These guys are the religious leaders who are supposed to stand for truth. They're supposed to stand for justice. Not only are they the religious leaders in the sense that we would think of it in, they're Israelite religious leaders. Right now they're under Roman authority, which they don't like. But they're not used to that. They're used to functioning as the leaders over the people. That means they're the religious leaders and they're also the civic leaders. So they want to uphold the truth when it comes to doctrine. They want to uphold the truth when it comes to civic issues. They're used to functioning, supposedly, in the area of justice and righteousness, as well as truth. And what do they do? We don't know what you're talking about. That's your problem. They should also care when you stop and think about it. These are the individuals who are supposed to be The pastors. Judas is having a tough time of it. Again, no reason to believe he's repentant. But he's feeling horrific. He's feeling terrible. He realizes he's he's done the wrong thing. And he's talking to the very ones who are supposed to be functioning as his pastors. And they say, it's your fault. It's your problem. I mean, all of this is just highlighting how bad they are, how corrupt they are how perverted they are. They've just condemned the one that Judas says is innocent. What's happened is Judas has prostituted himself. They've gotten what they wanted out of the relationship. Now he's asking for some help, some commitment. And they say, we have no commitment for you. shouldn't surprise us when, when thieves end up striking a deal when perverted, corrupt people strike a deal and then somehow somebody wants justice, well, you have to realize, who are you dealing with to begin with? Well, Judas responds once again in verse 5. If you look there, you'll see it says, And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And and in one sense, I stopped earlier because you'd want to say, What is he thinking? You know, he's going to lose his life. What, What was he doing that for? Well, you just keep reading and it says, And he went away and hanged himself. He feels that bad. He feels horrific. He feels terrible. 
he of all people is telling us on the, on the pages of eternal scripture, and he's right, Jesus is innocent. So he goes and he takes his own life. Luke's account, as recorded in Acts, gives us some different details, though I believe complementary details. In Acts chapter 1, verse 18, it says regarding Judas in this account, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Fit the two accounts together, the, the, the best explanation would be something along the lines of he goes and he hangs himself, he's there for a time, whether the branch breaks or whatever it is. When he comes down, he doesn't come down alive, he comes down and he splats and spills his guts, literally. It's meant to be gross, it's meant to give us the details that Dr. Luke would give. Leave it to those docs, and there he is in a sense, a fitting end, given what he has done. As bad as he may have felt for making a bad decision. Then the religious leaders respond in verse 6, The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. What do you think when you read that? I think that's pathetic. I mean, you just go say what? I mean, this is this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. Never the mind, never mind the fact that they they've just, in a sense, acknowledged Jesus' innocence because of the fact that they they see it as blood money. So so never never mind that reality. Never mind the fact that, that they once possessed this money. This was, this was their money. They give it to Judas as a payment for betrayal. And now they're saying, well, we certainly couldn't use that money for spiritual things. That would be unethical. And, we, you know, we're committed to temple ethics. <laughs> it's like, you've got to be kidding me. You absolutely have to be kidding me. They're prim and proper and absolutely ridiculous. And I don't mind myself pushing pause and saying, folks, this is a great reminder. This is a great reminder when we see that of the sickening reality of religious corruption. And I know full well I'm taking a risk by saying it. But if you can't figure that out, I, you know, it's the obvious. Even though I don't like to use the term and I never use the term, I'm a religious leader. Religious corruption is sickening and disgusting because it is cloaked in external morality and we're doing the right thing and it's all for God, right? And the reality is these guys are every bit as bad as Jesus said they were when he talked about them. Remember those woes in Matthew 23? I think he gave nine of them. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Nine times pronouncing his woes upon religious leaders who looked good on the outside, who talked about temple ethics and God, right? Because he said, what you are on the outside is nothing like you are on the inside. You are perverted and corrupt at the very core of your being. 
I believe Jesus when he said it back in Matthew 23, but now they are absolutely personifying, showing us again, these guys are exactly the guys Jesus said they were. In fact, if you even go back, if you go back to Matthew 23, I'll just read one of them in verse 27. In Matthew, 3, Matthew 23, 27, 28, you see, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You aren't on the inside what you say you are on the outside. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. Temple ethics, that wouldn't be right. But inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men. Temple ethics. But inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It should just make you feel sick to your stomach and think, this is, this is horrific. This is terrible. They're the very ones that paid the money and now they're talking about not being able to use it for church ministry? And if it's not bizarre enough, keep reading. Verse 7. In verse 7 of Matthew 27, And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. You say, why are you laughing and smirking? I mean, at this point in time, they're being, you know, good-hearted philanthropists committed to charity. That's what they're doing. You know what we need to do with this money? We can't use it in here, but you know what we need to do? We need to go and buy that field. The idea is so that when all of these visitors come to Jerusalem and they come in droves, some of them die. We need a place to bury them, all of these Jewish people. So what we'll do with the money, with our generous philanthropic hearts, because after all, we're religious leaders, we'll buy that old field. It's not able to be used for what it used to be used for. It's for sale. We'll start a cemetery. You say, these are good. Aren't these good people? Well, they're not good people. They're bad people. Doing charity. Bad religious people doing charity. That doesn't mean charity is wrong. Charity is good. But please know, just because you do charity doesn't mean you're good. we got to know that. We absolutely have to know that. Make a mental note of that. And they, they, from then on, it goes on to say in verse 8, for, for, for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So it's got a different name. Makes me wonder. They wouldn't have called it that. Maybe they still called it, you know, the the potter's field. But just to kind of give this modern day teeth, okay, they're going to buy a cemetery because they're so generous and kind and they're busy loving their neighbor. Today, perhaps it would be called the Potter's Field Memorial Cemetery. Sounds good. Read the plaque that would go on it like everybody wants to have. Fine print made possible by the gracious gifts of the most reverend chief priest, Jerusalem chapter. Oh, they were such good men. Did so much for our community. That's what's happening here. They would go down in history by those who couldn't see beyond the veneer as being such good men who did so much for our community. It's no guarantee of anything. They're liars. They're perverted. 
They're unjust hypocrites, as Jesus said, and it's a bad scene. Well, this isn't a very uplifting text to read, I know, which causes us again to say, why in the world did we have to learn about this here? I mean, the, the cross is going to be bad, but, you know, it's also really good because so, we know the outcome of the cross and we're so, so looking forward to the cross. And so it goes back to that question I brought up earlier. Why in the world is it here? Because I just think it's kind of the fly in the ointment. I just want to get to the cross. Let's just kind of hurry up with it and get there. It comes back to, and he's going to answer it now in the text, it's here to show us that even this horrific, blasphemous thing is to remind us that the Jesus Christ who was betrayed so that He would be crucified on the cross for our sins is having this happen to Him by divine appointment. Let's keep reading. It says in verse 9, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Ah, that's why he put it in here at this point in time. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now we know. may not be the way you would choose to write the gospel account, but this is the way God chose to write this gospel account. It's to remind us that it's happening according to plan. Even the horrific, horrendous acts of Judas. And then he being this evil man, dealing with other evil men, and it ends badly even for him. It's happening according to divine plan. Which just causes me again to just want to embrace Christ all the more as my Savior and as my Lord who did what He did on purpose and according to plan. And He was in fact the Sovereign who died. And He is great and He is majestic. And I want to worship Him like I haven't worshipped Him before. No doubt that is why this is in here ultimately. I won't take the time to get into the details of it, but I, I should at least acknowledge it before we move on. It is a bit of a challenging passage when you read that it says through Jeremiah the prophet in verse 9 and then you read Jeremiah from the first chapter to the last chapter and you see some similarities in here. You see some things in Jeremiah 18. You see some things in Jeremiah 32. But you don't see this exact passage. What you end up seeing, you see a Zechariah passage. In fact, you could even look in your Bible, perhaps, if you have a study Bible. I don't have a study Bible with me. And just looking in my margin, it, it doesn't cite the Jeremiah passage. It cites Zechariah 11. Zechariah 11, 12. Zechariah 11, 13. It's a bit of a challenge for Bible interpreters. You say, I, I don't really... How does this work? Well, I don't have the infallible answer. Uh, one possibility is the fact that... that at a certain time in history, you had Jeremiah listed first amongst the prophets... And so you have a book or a scroll or whatever form it was in, and you have Jeremiah first, but Zechariah is included in that. So it may have been called Jeremiah because that was the first book in there. That's a possibility. Another possibility is the fact that you end up having certainly Zechariah being quoted, but you also have these references when you read uh, to Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 32. And when you have parts of Zechariah... And parts of Jeremiah, it may have been that he just says Jeremiah because Jeremiah is the major prophet involved. He doesn't name both of them. Ultimately, we don't know. 
I'm not big for saying, well, you know, we'll all find out someday when we get to heaven because typically that's used regarding things that we can figure out now. And it's just, you know, like an excuse. This is one of those kind of things that I won't care about because I don't care about now in one sense. <laughs> um, but it's, you just can't know exactly for sure what he's getting at here. And I'll have to ask in heaven if I care then. And you can ask then too if you'd like to. The point is, even these horrific, unjust, unrighteous things are not glitches on the screen. That's why he can say, prophecy, Jeremiah... Zechariah, we would include, includes these very events happening according to plan. And this fits with what Jesus has been saying all along, right? Over and over again, Jesus has been talking about, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered over and I'm going to be crucified and I will rise again from the dead. It's all been about taking steps toward Calvary because that's Jesus' plan to take steps toward Calvary. He's that kind of Savior. He's a sovereign Savior. Matthew 20 would just be one example. Matthew 20, 18. Listen to these great words. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. That's what's happening here. And they will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles. That's what's about to happen. To mock and scourge and crucify Him and on the third day He will be raised up. Nothing, nothing, nothing anyone can do can stop this from happening. And even those who want these things to happen with bad motives are actually fulfilling God's perfect plan of redemption because that's part of the script leading to the cross which is supposed to happen. It causes me to love Jesus Christ all the more. It should cause you to love Jesus Christ all the more. He's that kind of Savior? I mean, this has all kinds of application. And then all of a sudden I move into to this side of the cross and the promises that we have. You know, you read Romans 8 and there are these magnificent promises that God makes to us as believers in His Son. And, and when you read them, you sometimes perhaps are even tempted to think, could this really be? Is it really, how could it really be possible that these things are true and they seem so sure and absolute and, and like history is already written and you might be tempted to think, Go back and read God's history. You know, if these things that are happening to Jesus weren't happening according to sovereign, divine design, according to prophecy, you might have something to worry about when it comes to Romans 8. But it's this kind of stuff that fuels my commitment to Romans 8 reality promises. This is just God being God, which means God being in charge. And for our benefit... This is absolutely amazing. Might one or two of you agree with that? I hope this is the case. Well, that's the end of the sermon, but I want a little more time. So give me five more minutes. But I, I, that qualifies. Done. I'll push pause or stop. And I just want to step back a little bit and talk a little bit about this as it would relate to where we are right now living in history, this issue of Judas. And then talk a little bit about 
what we talked about last time, and that's looking at Peter and Judas and contrasting them just a little bit if there's time. Here's a big hot question. And I want you to be thinking about these things. And, you know, they're not in the text here, and that's why I said the sermon's done. But I do want you to be thinking about these things because it raises some of these questions. And pastorally, I want you to be thinking about this kind of thing because you interact in the world around you, which is good. Here's the question. What is Judas's fate? What happened to Judas? Was Judas a Christian? What happened to Judas? Now, some of you are thinking right about now, as I ask the question, you're thinking, we need a new pastor. Because if he doesn't know the answer to that question, he's got a serious problem. And if you're thinking that, good job. The Bible agrees with you, and so does church history. But, by and large, there's a new trend, relatively speaking. It seems to be growing in trendiness. So if you're a trendy person, you might like this. But the new trend would be to not only wonder what happened to Judas, but even to go so far as to say Judas was a Christian, to go so far as to push that a little bit more and say Judas is actually a model. And you say, you are out of your mind. You read too many theological journals. No, this is just mainstream media. So I want you to think about that a little bit. And if I could just interact a little bit so you're thinking about it, it would be good. In an article called, Did Judas Get a Bum Rap? This was the synopsis. Some scholars speculate that Judas was motivated by love, not greed, and that his suicide was a sign of his loyalty to Jesus. Oh, what was I thinking? So that's what it is. What was I thinking when I read John seventeen twelve that says, Judas is the son of perdition, the son of hell? What was I thinking? What was I thinking when I read John six seventy where it says, one of you, Jesus says, is a devil, now he meant Judas. What was I thinking when I read Matthew twenty six twenty four, where Jesus says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. I just always thought those were negative statements about Judas. <laughs> I was thinking what you are thinking If you just read the text, if you just let Jesus say what He says and allow grammar and context and words to have basic meanings and you say, Judas was not loyal to Jesus. He was not motivated by love. He was the son of perdition, the son of hell. He was a devil, and it would have been better for him if he had not been born. That's what you're thinking if you just read the Bible. And as I said recently, I went to public school, and I figured that out. Right? When I read the Bible as an unbeliever, I figured out 
that Judas was the bad guy. Right? You just read it and you say, you know what? Who's the good guy in this story? Well, that's Jesus. Who's the bad guy? That's Judas. That's why all of you knew before when I asked you to raise your hand what it means to be a Judas. It means to be a traitor. It doesn't mean to be a model of Christian hope. You know, when we begin saying that the villain in the story is the hero, it might just be a sign that we're on the wrong team. Right? Something strange, something strangely wrong. How in the world do you do what one man did, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, when he met with Eric Menendez? You remember Eric Menendez and his brother? Lyle, 1989, I believe it was. They went into their parents' house, spoiled rich kids, went into their parents' house where they were watching TV or something, and shot their father and killed him, they say, pretty much instantly. Shot their mother. She was trying to get away, so they went outside and reloaded and came inside. I know at least one of the shots was to her cheek and killed her. And then called 911, said, someone's killed our parents. It was a huge trial, huge big deal in Los Angeles. What in the world was that man thinking who wrote the gospel according to Judas when he met with Eric Menendez and gave him Judas as an example of hope and forgiveness? We live in really, really strange times, friends. When the villain in the story is the hero in the story, you might be on the wrong team. It seems like we want so badly to have people become Christians. Maybe our motives are right, but we are so bleeding, biblically illiterate or unfaithful or something that we want so badly to have people become Christians that we even take the villains and we hold them up as the role models. And what does that end up doing? It gives false hope. I would love to meet with Eric Menendez. I love the reality of someone going to talk to him about forgiveness even. But Judas as the model... Please don't misunderstand. I think he could be forgiven. I think Eric Menendez absolutely could be forgiven based upon Paul's conversion, based upon my conversion, based upon anyone's conversion, based upon our relationship to God if we're sinners. But not because Judas is the example. Well, I realize I'm off on a bit of a tangent and I'm venting a little bit pastorally, but I think it serves a greater purpose. And that is, please read your Bible. Please. And, and, and pre, please read good theology, sound doctrine. And, and please, in a loving, gracious way, open your mouth and talk to people. Tell them the truth about God and the truth about His Son and the truth about redemption and the truth about everything you could possibly tell them the truth about. Because as you do that, 
It glorifies God because you're agreeing with God about what He has said. And it ultimately is what is going to give people hope. Because you're telling them the truth, which gives a true hope as painful as it might be in the short run. Please. We have such a great opportunity living in the world we are living in. I said we live in strange times. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not bemoaning the fact that I live in the 21st century. I am so glad. Why? Because I know God is sovereign and I'm supposed to be living now. And even though there are things that happen in our world that I don't like, and I might like to read history and fantasize about being there because everything was good then. Yeah, right. But I'm so glad that I live now. And the Bible doesn't say we should be salt and light. The Bible says we are salt and light, is what Jesus says. The issue is you got to act like it. you got to be salty and you got to be shiny. <laughs> but you are salt. You are light. And so don't be afraid, but make sure you're filling your mind with what's true and with what's right. And then you're speaking what's true and what's right. And you, by the grace of God, can make a huge impact for the glory of Christ and for the good of people. It's needed. It's necessary. It's motivating. And I'm motivated as your pastor to pray that it really will be so. And I want you to pray for me that it will be so in my life. But we've got to get the story right. We've got to get the story right or we're not helping anybody. We're just confusing them. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your kindness, your generosity that you show to us in so many amazing ways. And we are thankful for your gospel. We are thankful that we do see a huge difference between Peter and Judas. Not because one man was better than the other man. Such was not the case. Even Jesus talking to Peter made that clear. And yet by your sovereign design, according to your purposes, you rescued Peter from himself and from his sin. You brought about repentance to the point where we read the book of Acts and while he was not a perfect man, we are impressed. We are impressed by your power in his life. And it is simply amazing. And we are amazed as well, Father, at your grace in our lives. Give us a heart for you and a heart for people both saved and lost. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.